ancient Christmas, the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel message, as theologians refer to it, in Genesis 3.15. It's kind of a, that passage, that verse is kind of a back to the future verse, because we're going to go all the way thousands of years back, but that verse is talking about something into the into its future and even into our future to some respect. They not know that when it comes to the New Testament's quotation, dealing with, handling of Genesis 3.15, there is one passage in particular that deals with it with tremendous detail, and that is in 1 John chapter 3, the, the text that I asked you to turn to. So I'm going to show you that here. I'm going to read and then read 1 John 3, 8 through 13. So Genesis 13, I will put enmity between you and the husband, uh, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, that's, that's, that's Genesis 3.15. Now, let's look at 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So how is this a parallel or even interpretive passage of Genesis 3.15? Well, first of all, we see there in verse 8, a reference to who we identified last week as the primary initial starter of all of this great conflict, and that is Satan, where it says that the devil, in verse 8, has been sinning from the beginning. So we're located right into that very original kind of perspective we see in Genesis 3.15. And then we see the promise of Genesis 3.15 also articulated in verse 8. The promise of Genesis 3.15 is that a great conflict will arise, eventually causing the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And so in verse 8, 1 John 3, we also see this, the Christmas promise. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And incidentally, that's why we're talking about Genesis 3.15 as a Christmas series. That's, That's pretty much it right there. This is the promise of Christ's coming and the work that he would accomplish in his coming. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You also see this reference, no one, no one, verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning 
for God's seed abides in him. Depending on the version of the Bible that you're using, Genesis 3.15 may say offspring, or it may say seed. The old version, some of the, the one that some of you like memorized or learned when you were younger, uh, it said, I will cause enmity, or I will put enmity between the seed, your seed, and the seed of the woman. And so here in, in, in verse 9, we see a direct reference to this idea of seed, God's seed. And then number four, we see, another parallel we see is that, is that there are children of God and there are children of the devil. And this gets to the question that we'll be handling primarily today, and that is, what does Genesis 3.15 mean when it refers to offspring? Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. What does Genesis 3.15 mean when it refers to this enmity or battle or antagonism between offspring? I think it's very important to, to, to make something really clear. This passage, 1 John 3, clarifies one important point that could be missed without it if all you had was Genesis 3.15, and that is this. The offspring who are to be at enmity with one another are not offspring born into different races, but born into different relationships. So what you've got here is a clearing of all of the racial congestion, confusion, false categories that have existed for thousands of years. In this verse, First uh, John 3, 8 and 9, if you will, you've got the clearing of the table of any confusion about racial superiority or racial inferiority because only two races exist so far as God sees. And they are those that are born of God and those that are born of the devil. So any interpretation within the Bible of racial superiority or any questions about racial superiority as it relates to is this offspring more favored than that offspring or so on. All of that is cleared up with this particular verse. There are two races so far as God is concerned. One is born of God and one is born of the devil. These are the two races, and this is the only racial conflict that makes sense. This is the only racial conflict that should exist. Now, what is, what's the difference between these two groups? What's the difference between those born of God and those born of the devil? And you could smartly say, well, one is born of God and one's born of the devil. I get it. But it's important to understand, and we referenced this last week, it's important to understand that before Jesus did his work on the cross, everybody was in the same boat. We were all children of the devil. There really was only one people in many respects before Jesus, the Bible says, created a new people from those who were not a people. So what's the difference why are some born of God and some born of the devil? Well, everybody, naturally speaking, inherited the guilt of their great, great, great spiritual grandmother and grandfather, Adam and Eve. They inherited that guilt, 
and were born into a compliant relationship with the enemy of their souls. I did a little studying this week on Stockholm Syndrome, and I can't remember the girl's name, but one of the most famous cases of Stockholm Syndrome occurred in Kansas City. And it was uh, during the 1930s. This was during a time in which kidnapping for ransom was a really popular thing. And, I, uh, and so some, some, uh, some, some, some criminals kidnapped the daughter of a, of a wealthy judge in Kansas City. Uh, what's the name of the gangster? In, uh, Tom Pendergast. This, this judge was a Pendergast appointee. And, and so these gangsters kidnapped this woman, and they held her ransom in Shawnee. You can actually, I found the house on Google Maps. It still exists. Uh, they held her for ransom in the basement of a house in what is now KCK. Then it was called Deshani. And they demanded, I want to say $60,000 worth of ransom. They got it the next day, and they released her. Shortly thereafter, these criminals were discovered, were found, and put up, one of them at least, the head one, up on capital charges. Now, Many years later, this woman who was kidnapped would kill herself. She'd take her own life. And in her suicide note, she essentially stated, the people who kidnapped me were the only people who loved me and understood me. So that's what Stockholm Syndrome is. Stockholm Syndrome is essentially toward your captor. Having a, having, having a sense of, of, of willful compliance toward the one who enslaves you. And that is a relatively rare phenomenon within the annals of criminology, but it's an extremely common phenomenon within the spiritual world in which all of us were born into, dead into our sins and trespasses, enslaved to someone who hated us, to someone whose goal was to destroy us eternally. And we had such broken hearts that we had a sort of spiritual Stockholm syndrome that made us sympathetic toward this evil enemy of our souls. But Jesus came. Verse 16 of 1 John 3 says, Jesus came and it says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for, for our brothers. Jesus came and redeemed a group of individuals, rescuing them from this sort of battered spouse syndrome, this Stockholm syndrome, waking us up and giving us new appetites and new loves and new desires. But by waking us up, an enmity was created, an antagonism was created between us and those who are still what Paul says in 2 Timothy, captured by the devil to do his will. It's, it's as if we are fleeing the scene of a bank robbery gone wrong in which there are a number of hostages and the door has been opened and we see this is the moment we can run for freedom. And it's as if there are other hostages in that same room who are angry at us for going against the will of our benevolent captor. And so a conflict arises 
between a bunch of hostages, let's say in a bank vault. And, uh, and the conflict is between the hostages. And some of the hostages are like, don't you see these are evil men? And, and also they're kind of incompetent and there's a way out right now. And simultaneous to that, you have another group of hostages so brainwashed that they become enforcers of the hostages' will. And they actually begin grabbing at you and trying to keep you to remain in captivity. That's the offspring enmity we see predicted in the book of, well, in Genesis 3.15, and what we see clearly highlighted or enumerated in 1 John 3. So what's the difference between a child of God and a child of the devil? Well, this shedding of the Stockholm Syndrome would be one way to describe it. The text says it this way in verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So internally, the difference is that those who have been saved by Jesus have a seed of life, the very life of God himself implanted in us, and we become, what Peter says, partakers of the divine nature, and we can't keep on living in the slavery in which all people were born. We can't. We won't. Externally, this means that we begin a steady progression into practical holiness and a definite break with patterns of sin. It isn't saying here that if you sin, you are born of the devil. In fact, earlier in this letter, John says very clearly, if you say that you are without sin, you ain't of God, like you're lying. So John is not making a case for sinlessness. What he's making a case for is, is, is unrepentant, habitual practicing of sin. The word practicing in the Greek that appears here, I believe, if I'm, not, if I'm remembering this correctly, has the idea of building, constructing. So when he says, no one who makes a practice of sinning, he's talking about someone kind of setting about the effort to build a life of sin. So what about the children of the devil? How do you, how do you typify them? <clears throat> well, in John 8, Jesus specifically speaks to a group of people, and he says this in John 8, verse 42 through 45. If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. So you've got this prediction in Genesis 3.15 that two kinds of offspring will emerge. And this is the only kind of two different kinds of people that really matter in all of the different ways that we differentiate between people. And that is you will have some who are the 
God, and you'll have some who are the offspring of Satan. How does one become the offspring of Satan? Do nothing, and you're already there. How does one become an offspring of God? God must speak into your life, help you to see the glory and truth of Jesus Christ, help you to see that he laid down his life for you, and then he must make you new, adopting you as his child into his family. And so now we've got a clarity, some kind of clarity about what Genesis 3.15 meant by offspring. And now we ask, what is the enmity that is sitting between these two offspring? Well, we've got these two tribes. And 1 John 3.13 says, Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Now, what I want you to see today, this morning, is that when you see conflict between these two sets of people, do not be surprised by the fiery trial because this is exactly what God has planned, and he planned it all the way back in Genesis. He has planned for there to be an enmity between of people, those born of Satan and those born of God. He has put that enmity between them. So don't be surprised, John says, that the world hates you. Matthew 10, Jesus says, brother will deliver brother to death. You see all of the divisions, all of the categories that we have for the kinds of people who should love each other, all that starts dissolving under the gospel, and now you simply have these two categories of people. You've got those that are born of Christ and those that are not. And so all of the family stuff even begins to disintegrate, and Jesus says, brother will deliver brother over to death. Why would one brother deliver another brother to death? Because one brother was born of God and one brother was not. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. In in John 15, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Don't be surprised when the enmity between these two groups of people rise up and become undeniable. Back in August, I I talked about this a little bit in a series we did called Anti-Fragility in an Age of Adversity. And the illustration we offered is we were talking about how sometimes these two entities can kind of coexist Peaceably. I would say there's a bit of a cold war going on. There's nothing hot or hostile on the surface. So sometimes they can coexist peaceably, but then eventually when their two paths diverge, there will be open, hostile conflict. And the way I this was that back in the, imagine that back in the 60s, uh, hitchhiking was really common. Imagine a Christian trucker named Jim, and he is in New York, and he's headed to Northern California. And as he's leaving New York, he picks up a pagan hitchhiker named Charles who is wanting to go to Southern California. So now they are in 
the truck together. And thanks to Google Maps, which they did not have in the 70s, I can tell you that these two people can travel together without any disagreement, without even discuss, need to discuss direction. These two people, even though one is headed to Northern California and one is headed to Southern California, these two people can travel together all the way to Ogallala, Nebraska. So a little more than halfway of their trip they can make without ever coming into conflict. But then, when they reach Ogallala, Nebraska, the trucker who wants to go to Northern California needs to head north. And the, the, the hitchhiker, Charles, who wants to go to Southern California, say LA, he needs to start heading southwest. And so for a while, these two people, even though they have entirely different destinations in mind, for a while they can travel together in peace. But eventually, at a certain moment, an impasse occurs and something must be done. A choice must be made. And there are seasons of time in, which, in, in, in any culture in which the children of God and the children of the devil have generally aligned intentions or purposes in, in, in outward expression. Like say we all want our families to be safe or something like that. And we can cooperate all the way to Ogallala, but eventually a choice will put itself upon us and we will differ. We will diverge. So what happens, we've got Jim, the Christian truck driver, and Charles, the hitchhiker. What happens in Ogallala? What, 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 what are they going to do? Well, what if I told you that Charles's last name is Manson? That escalated, right? In other words, at some point, depending on who you've got riding along with you, if some point what they are is dead in sin and in trespasses, openly hostile to God, at enmity with God, then eventually the divergence will provoke violence. I want you to go with me. I can't. I need to go north. No, no, I'm going this way, and you have the car. You must take me this way. No, I'm going north. The conflict moves from cold war to hot war. And this is it's necessary for us to see and anticipate this because when we talk about conflict between these two parties, one of the most emphatic purposes of God is to make sure we are not surprised. Do not be surprised. The world hates you. Do not be surprised by this fiery trial. Jesus repeatedly warns his disciples time and time again, they will hate you on account of me. How do we respond to this reality predicted all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that there will be, throughout history, a conflict between these two parties? What do, how do we respond to that? Well, look back at 1 John verse 11, chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides 
in death. How do we respond to this prediction and the reality that we're beginning to see perhaps more clearly now of enmity between these two parties? Number one, time and time again, in some almost unexpected way, God pronounces this command after disclosing this conflict. God will say, people are going to hate you, love one another. The world is going to hate you, love one another. Why? What's going on there? Well, I think what's going on there is that when the temperature of conflict with the world turns up, there is an inevitable temptation to fight inwardly within the body of Christ. And this is so true if you've been married, especially if you've been married and been poor at the same time. You know, you know what I'm talking about here. Angela and I were laughing about one of our greatest fights ever it was like a year into marriage, and we bought this painting, and it was more than we could afford. We shouldn't have bought it, and we put it into the car, a little Dodge Neon, and uh, we were so like, I think we were both feeling guilty about even buying it and scared. It's like, how are we going to eat? But we, now we have a painting. And, uh, and, and we put it in the back of the, the, uh, the Dodge Neon, and we closed the door. I'm pretty sure it was Angela that closed the door. And, uh, and the glass shatters on that painting just immediately. And, and literally, without any conversation, without any other you know, assessment, we just started fighting like two chihuahuas trapped in a, in a, in a coffee can. You know, like, like it was just this, you know, just this incessant like, this has to be your fault. No, this has to be your fault. No, this has to be your fault. And, you know, and I think it was so ridiculous that we actually eventually started laughing. But, but this is, this is, this is uh, marriage 101, friends. When an attack or incident comes from the outside, something you had no way of knowing about or predicting or controlling, the inevitable tension will be to turn the pain that you've received from the outside into something that someone you love must be responsible for. This is classic. So why does John in 1 John 3 say, you are caught up in a cosmic uh, conflict created by God himself all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Therefore, don't be surprised and love one another. Why? Because this is the temptation when times get tough to turn against one another as the world turns up the heat of its persecution. And so this is by, without a doubt, the number one temptation when times get hard is to turn against one another. Years ago when Wes was, I think he was literally like four years old, I was out in Wyoming with some of my friends and we decided to go rabbit hunting. Because that's what, you know, Wyoming's famous for is, you know, elk-sized rabbits. So, so we got all these guns, you know, you know, we just, we just, everybody in Wyoming has 30 guns. And so we loaded all these guns, these, these variety of guns into the back of a, a truck. And we're like, we'll take Wes. And, and he wasn't strong enough to hold a rifle with two hands yet. So, so he would hold uh, the rifle like an RPG. He'd put the stock above his shoulder and shoot like, you know, this. And, uh, and that was really awkward. And so someone handed him, um, I think it was a 9 millimeter 
double stack, you know, pistol. So you've got, you know, like 14 round semi-auto pistol. And they're like, here, just use this instead. Which is like obviously more manageable for a four-year-old. The problem is, the problem is, you know, four-year-olds don't really move their heads when they talk. They move their whole selves when they're like, so if they want to talk to you, they're just like, this is what they do. And so, so like all of us guys are standing around and there's this one little four-year-old dude and, and he just keeps like turning to us, like holding a gun and pointing this, you know, semi-auto nine mil just at everyone. And we're all like, you know, you know, the limbo skills, the limbo skills were high. And, and, and there was this just, this sense of like, eventually we found like a gun that had a single shot and we gave him that and then like he could shoot the one shot and then we would be done and so on. Friends, I'm not pointing any fingers because that would be the exact opposite of what I'm trying to get to. It is shocking to see the amount of times we as Christians are caught up in a battle only to turn the gun on those we love or on those we are called to love. You know, the enemy's over there, guys. It's, it's shocking. It, it really is shocking and saddening to see the number of times, the number of comments made that are directed toward, critical comments directed toward our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So here's, here's one takeaway from this whole concept, and that's simply this. We cannot fill our pulpits or our social media posts with the world's talking points because the world's talking points have baked into them antagonism against the very people we are called to love. Pie chart your social media content and ask this simple question. How much of it, as far as criticisms go, is aimed at your brothers and sisters in Christ? How much of the time is the gun actually being aimed at the enemy? And how often is it intentionally or accidentally doing the work of the enemy for him? We'll see next week when we look at Revelation 12. This is the description of the devil. That serpent of old, the great accuser of the brethren. And when conflict emerges between the children of God and the children of the devil, all too often the children of God wind up being accidental weapons for the accuser of the brethren. John says, as he describes this conflict between these two races, he says in verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So don't be surprised. Also, don't think, don't be surprised also means don't think you can avoid this conflict. And don't assume 
that your brother who is embroiled in the conflict is doing something wrong. Spurgeon wrote, if you know a gospel which is approved by the age and patronized by the learned, that gospel is a lie. And someone else wrote, and I don't know who wrote this, modern evangelicalism's golden calf is cultural relevance and their sacrifices to it are the very pages of Scripture. Friends, if we fill our pulpits and our social media posts with the world's talking points, we will inevitably be sacrificing the very pages of Scripture to the golden calf of relevance. And we will be doing that in some effort to avoid a conflict which cannot be avoided. It's a conflict which God has baked into the very fabric of the universe. And it's a conflict which exists because he has been good enough, kind enough, and merciful enough to save some and wake them up from their Stockholm syndrome, their battered spouse syndrome. And so don't be surprised, but Jesus says, be delighted, rejoice, be happy when this conflict emerges. Matthew 5, 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's this thing uh, element to Genesis 3.15, which predicts the kind of warfare that both entities will wage against one another. The warfare which the church will wage against the world is open, pronounced, and not subtle. It is stepping on heads. Now, stepping on heads sounds really mean, of course. Yes, fine. We'll get to that in a moment. The point is, is you don't have to wonder what I'm doing. I'm trying to step on your head. On the other hand, look at the warfare engaged by the serpent. He will strike your heel. He will get you when you're not looking from behind. He will hit you when you are the weakest, at the weakest point on your body. What's relevant to that as it relates to Matthew 5.11 Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It's all from behind. It's all all at the heel. It's all crafty and serpentine. Don't be surprised. And finally this, patiently endure evil. Patiently endure evil. Look at 2 Timothy. Well, I've got it up on the screen if you want to just look at it here. 2 Timothy 22 through 26 gives us the prescription for how to handle this conflict. It's a very clear prescription. There's some nuance that needs to be explored in some of what it prescribes. But this is a key text to understanding how Christians are to navigate that conflict that we're describing. It says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, 
able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and then here's the promise. Here is the promise that we cling to, is that this conflict and the boundaries of this conflict is not set. Because one time we were on the other side, that means that God can move others from this side to that side. And so the whole goal of what Paul prescribes in 2 Timothy 2 is found in verse 26, that some may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. It's very amazing about the way that the Bible talks about love and hate. And Jesus tells us very clearly that because they hated me, they will hate you. But nowhere in Scripture are we called to hate those who are not sons of God. We are simply called to hate the one who has, as it says in verse 26, been snared, ensnared by the devil, and captured by him to do his will. This is a key nuance to the way we conduct this conflict, and we'll see this more next week when we look at Revelation chapter 12, which is the other great passage that elaborates on Genesis 3.15. But I want to conclude by showing you something that moved, like, legitimately moves my heart. It's, the, it's, it's a graphical or visual representation of the proto-evangelion. I suspect that many of you have this, but I'm going to try to talk about it uh, in a way that maybe, maybe you haven't paid attention to or thought of entirely. There's a bunch of little pieces and cues that go into this particular piece of art, and this is something we do on Wednesday nights in the summer sometimes is we'll look at a piece of art and we'll talk about it and interpret it. And that's actually because if we learn how to interpret visual art, we'll actually be better at reading our Bibles. The Bibles are presented, the way we read our Bibles is very similar to the way that we'll interpret this painting, for instance. So here you have Eve and Mary, and they're standing under an arch, and in, in art, an arch just represents like a certain um, moment in time. Typically, when you'll see a, a painting that has a bunch of different scenes in it, there'll be in arches that give you a sense that this is one moment, this is another moment, and so on. But then, of course, you've got the arch being related to just this idea of an archetype. And that's what we have here. We have sort of a representation of these two, these two peoples. And, of course, you've got, you've, got some, you've got three different kinds of fruit going on here. You've got uh, the fruit that, that Eve was allowed to eat. I guess those are pears in the artist's imagination. I like pears. They look a little bit like acorn squash, like squash too. I don't know. Anyway, uh, this is the fruit she's allowed to eat. And, of course, then in her hand is the fruit that she's not allowed to eat. And you can see a, a bite taken out of it. But there's a third fruit in the, in the, in the image. Can you see it? It's the, what Luke 1, Elizabeth says to Mary, blessed is the fruit of your womb. So there's a third fruit. It's Jesus himself. And notice the colors in this painting. You've got brown, which is the color of earth, and you've got Eve sort of bound into the earth. From earth you emerge, to earth you will return. She's of the world in some respects. And then Mary's colors are blue and white, and this is evocative of heaven and truth and purity. 
And, and notice, notice where the hands are. You know, well, first notice their faces. You know, Eve is is what is she ashamed? Sorry, afraid. And Mary is confident, empathetic. Look at the posture. Look at where their shoulders are. I look at their hands. Eve's still clutching this, this forbidden fruit. And that's, that's, that's what you do if you're born of the devil. You still, you're, still, you're still biting into the thing that's killing you. But, but Mary has reached out and taken the other hand and said, here, this is the, this is, you've got the fruit that, that will kill you, that has killed you and is killing you. Here's the fruit that will save you. Here's, here's Jesus. And then, of course, you've got, you know, the snake. I mean, it's, it's wrapped around Eve. But then Mary's foot is actually crushing the serpent's head. And a bunch of people had a real problem with that. A bunch of Protestants had a real problem with that because it wasn't Jesus crushing the head. It's like, no, Re- uh, Revelation 12 and, and Romans 16 say that we'll have a part in the crushing. That's fine. Mary represents this, this other people. And so I, I don't want to end the message with just only talking about conflict and talking about children of the devil and children of God. I want to say uh, um, God wants you to be his, and he sent his son to be a fruit that was consumed by sin would bear a seed in his death that would lead to the salvation of many. He's offered his son. He's offered his son. And he can do something in you right now that makes you realize that what that means is that you could become a whole new person. And you rich family. One of the things I didn't mention, just as an aside, is this is a you know a garden scene. And of course, God is so detail-oriented and such a good writer. I always think of God as a writer, but he writes with the ink of reality. You know, He's such a good writer that he puts Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and calls Jesus to be crushed under the weight of sin and sorrow for the sake of those who need to be saved. So yeah, there's this great conflict, but what I'm trying to do right now is, is trying to show you model uh, kind of how we deal with that conflict I'm overt. I'm telling you up front. Some of you are born of God and some of you are not. And if you're born of God, you will not keep on sinning. And if you are not born of God, you have Stockholm Syndrome. And you need someone to wake you up. And just like this, it's, there's, a, there's a way to be clear, kind, but firm. No. Let's, I'm taking your hand away from the fruit. I'm saying, here, this is what you need. You need Jesus, who was offered up to you. We know this is love, that he laid down his life for us. So can we just pray together? Let's bow our heads and pray.